I'm Kate, and welcome to the Picture House Podcast, where we discuss the architecture, design, and history of America's early cinemas. We hope that telling the stories of these places and the people associated with them will help you explore their place in our collective memory and our communities today. The theater we're going to talk about today is, regrettably, one whose present place in its community it will be impossible to explore. Although there's the question of whether or not it's still around, the bigger question is, where might it be? I don't know the name of this theater, or where it existed, or, for that matter, if it ever really did. So, this episode is really more of a straight historical story. Today, we'll tell the tale of a renowned architect, an unusual adaptation, and an anonymous small town. Featured in the Better Theater section of the March 10th and April 7th, 1934 issues of Motion Picture Herald, this is the story of How a Garage Became a Theater. Necessity is the mother of invention. Plato's proverb is so well-worn because it's so true. Take the true story of a small-town theater owner-operator, alias Brown, who in the winter of 1932 was bought out of his lease and suddenly put in the unenviable predicament of holding contracts for all the choice films for the coming season with no house in which to show them. In the grips of the Great Depression, Brown was in no position to build himself a new theater, even a modest one. His town, of some 7,000 persons, was one of those typical communities centered around a courthouse in the town square, with most of the commercial buildings in its vicinity. Of those, the only available building in his price range had most recently been used for automobile sales and service. And so, the immediate need to find a new space spurred Brown and his architect to get creative, to reinvent a former garage as a pleasant place to show movies. That architect was Robert O. Bowler. Robert and his sibling Carl were together known as the firm of the Bowler Brothers. I have plans for a future feature of the Bowler Brothers and some of their key works, so I won't go into too much detail right now. I'll just say that, based out of Kansas City, Missouri, they were primarily theater designers and were particularly prolific in Missouri, Kansas, and Oklahoma. Robert is credited with designing most of the firm's Midwest work after 1920. In March of 1934, when the story of this mystery theater was published, the magazine credited him with having designed well over a hundred theaters. The existing garage building had a street frontage of 42 feet and was 100 feet long. The lot it was on extended another 20 feet behind the building. The facade was of red brick broken up by two large display windows and a central garage entrance. Within the building, the distance from the floor to the bottom of the ceiling trusses was only 14 feet. Accepting Brown's challenge to transform the building from car house to movie house, Bowler determined that, by raising the roof and extending it over the additional 20 feet of ground lying in the rear, a cozy little motion picture theater seating 559 persons could be obtained at a cost of about $15,000. This, despite the fact that the old building was not particularly promising in appearance. But the walls were sound and the roof was in good shape, so Bowler and Brown moved forward. 
The first thing Bowler did was raise the roof three feet, resulting in a new clearance of 17 feet from the floor to the bottom of the roof trusses. The rear wall of the building was taken out, and as many of its bricks as could be salvaged were reused to build the new wall 20 feet further back. Then a roof was added to that new 20-foot portion, giving the building an overall length of 120 feet. The interior of the front portion of the structure was built out to accommodate a lobby and a foyer. The lobby rose the full height two stories to the new roof line, while the portions on either side of it were designed for a second story to hold the manager's office and advertising and generator rooms. The second floor also housed the projection room and a janitor's supply room. Much of the interior decoration throughout the theater was superficial, done economically to make the space seem bigger and fancier than it really was. The lobby floor was covered with henna red, dull gold, Nile green, and black battleship linoleum, a heavier gauge linoleum. Smooth cement wainscoting on the walls was decorated in stenciled designs colored to harmonize with other parts of the lobby. A portion of the wall between the wainscoting and the ceiling was finished in a vertical grain ivory texture stucco with an overlay of gold bronze waxing wiped to show the ivory on all high surfaces. The texture work stopped at about a line three feet below the lobby ceiling and the frieze above and the ceiling were carried out in sand finished plaster to be used as a base for painted decorations. The frieze had ornamental stenciled designs in greens, yellows, and reds. Off to one side of the foyer was the stairway to the second floor, and near the area at the top of the stairs, Bowler managed to squeak in a miniature loge section, seating eight or ten persons, designed for reservation by small parties. Moving inward, the lobby and the foyer were separated by three pairs of doors. The foyer was 14 by 24 feet and was bookended by men and women's retiring rooms. The height of the foyer was limited to 9 feet because of the space above being needed for the projection room. So some visual trickery to give an illusion of greater height was done by decorating the walls with a vertical grain texture stucco of warm gray with a blue and silver bronze waxing. Throughout the lobby and the foyer, Pine for paint was used for doors and trim, thus eliminating the expense of more costly woods for staining. The auditorium of the theater, when finished, accommodated 551 seats. Overhead, false beams finished in acoustical plaster and decorated in shades of tan were built around the exposed trusses. The walls throughout generally featured some stenciling, texturing of stucco, or other affordable decorative treatments to give things an air of sophistication. The proscenium opening was 26 feet in width by 17 feet in height, opening onto a stage 12 feet in depth. The screen was set about 4 feet from the rear stage wall. The facade of the building was finished in a light cream-colored stucco, applied over the old brickwork whenever possible. Some decorative effect was achieved in places by offsets in the stucco work. Ornamentation included terracotta copings, a rich shade of gold, and a central panel with an ornamental design in yellow gold highlighted with touches of red. As Bowler proclaimed, the whole building was therefore designed on one of the most efficient and economical plans possible for a theater of this type.
The entire remodel took only eight weeks. Between the termination of his lease and opening of his new theater, Brown only missed out on showing movies for two weeks. In total, including the initial $8,000 cost of the building itself, Brown put $14,700 into his garage to theater conversion. He entered on this most recent phase of his career as a theater operator in the face of a lost lease, a severe winter, and the worst depression in history, and has come out of the experiment a successful theater owner with an attractive and up-to-date building. Bowler credited the success of the remodeling to the exhibitor's ingenuity and grit in the face of many obstacles. But I don't think Bowler would have written a feature article if he weren't also a little proud of himself. And I suppose, why shouldn't he be? Possible pride aside, his story was meant to illustrate to folks beaten down by the Depression that they had options, that there were in fact creative, affordable ways for them to keep their businesses going. Although noted several times as being a true story, I'm pretty skeptical about that since Bowler kept both the town and the client anonymous. Perhaps he just wanted the opportunity to show that he was a creative problem solver. Maybe, like most everyone else during the Depression, he was just trying to drum up business. Maybe he and the editors of Motion Picture Herald cooked up this little scenario to give down-on-their-luck theater owners a little hope. Or maybe this garage-to-theater conversion really did happen. Maybe it's still out there today in some little Midwestern town. Whether fable, fiction, or real, I thought it was a fun little story, and I hope you did too. Thanks for listening. I hope you've enjoyed it. We'll be on a break for the next few weeks as I take vacation and work on new episodes. If you're new to the podcast, I encourage you to take this time to catch up on some of our back episodes. And whether you're new or you've been with us the whole time, I hope you'll join us again when we're back with new episodes in September. Until then, may your seats be ever in the center.